So let me pray, and then we'll look at uh, this passage. So Father, thank you so much for this Christmas Advent season. And Lord, thanks for what we get to celebrate. And I pray that uh, you would encourage our hearts today as we look at this theme of hope. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have this friend back in England, and uh, her parents uh, were immigrants to England from another country. And uh, the tradition that they come from and that my friend grew up in, uh, in that tradition, they give their children very meaningful names. So their names like mean something important to them. And so our friend is named Patience, a nice name, Patience. Uh, and they, her parents named her that because they tried for years and years and years to conceive and it just never happened. Uh, and I think it took them about 10 years of trying. And then finally, Patience came. So they named her Patience. But then they had a second daughter, and the second daughter, uh, they got pregnant pretty quickly after Patience was born, and so the second daughter they named Blessing. It's a great name, right? Surprise, a blessing, isn't this wonderful? And then they had a third daughter. And uh, anybody want to guess what that child's name was? It could be kindness, or joy, or temperance, or courage. So there's Patience, there's Blessing, and then Sandra. (laughs) now sandra is a great name so apologies to any of you who have like really important relatives in your life that are named sandra it's a wonderful name but in that list it feels a little bit like a letdown doesn't it Um, and i'm telling you this because uh today's passage there's a lot of things that we could focus on uh in this passage but what i want to do is we're going to look at really a lot of what happens in luke chapter one and so what we had read was just the very end bit we're going to focus on a lot of what's written in there but i want to focus on the names that are mentioned in luke chapter one um and so uh, as was mentioned this is the first sunday of advent and it's these four weeks before christmas and uh, each one has a theme, and so they're, they're hope and peace and joy and love, and this week's theme is hope. And our passage, actually, uh, if you went all the way back to the start of Luke chapter 1, which we'll look at in a second, it actually begins with a lot of deferred hope. Uh, it begins with a lot of unfulfilled dreams. And sometimes when that sort of things happen in our lives, right, like our prayers are unanswered, or maybe we prayed for something and then the opposite happened, have you experienced that? Uh, you know, that sort of thing happens in our lives, and, and our natural tendency is to sort of turn away from God. Uh, and sometimes it's a hard 180-degree turn. It's just like, I'm, I'm done. Uh, other times, maybe it's like a slight one-degree turn, and then another, and another, and another, and another, and another, until eventually you've turned 180 degrees in the other direction. And that's a little bit of what we're going to see today. We're actually going to meet this couple of characters named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they are these people that, that's what they experience. Their, most of their life is unfulfilled hopes, unanswered prayers. And yet, they're filled with hope. They're, they're absolutely filled with hope. So how does somebody do that? How do you hold on to hope even though you might feel like God is not listening? Uh, that's what we're going to see in Zechariah and Elizabeth today. And again, I mentioned there's a lot we could focus on in this passage, but we're just going to focus on the name. So there's going to be three parts to today's sermon. Part one, Herod, and then a person with no name. So there's a a no-name person. Part two, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then part three, John. Uh, And so here we go. Part one, Herod, and then a person with no name. Um, And we get most of the names all the way back up in verses five to seven. So you might want to scan back up in your Bible if you have that open to verses five to seven. And the first name is there in verse five, and that's Herod. 
Uh, It says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea. Now, in one sense, like when you read ancient literature, especially when you read the Bible, when they name a ruler, they're usually saying, this happened in the time frame that this guy or this person was in charge. Um, And that certainly is what is happening here. It's putting a time stamp on it. But there's a lot more lurking in this title, King of Judea. Uh, Herod was actually given this title, not by the Jews, but by the Roman leaders. And more than that, uh, Herod wasn't Jewish. And so he was made king over a people who he was not ethnically connected to. Now, our modern years and Western years and democratic years, we hear that and we think, okay, well, great. What's the big deal? And rightfully so, we should think that way. But in the ancient world, it's not how they thought. Uh, The ancient and Eastern way of thinking, uh, having somebody ruling you who is part of your ethnic line was everything. Uh, Particularly for the Jews, because if you look at their history, do you know the last time they had a king at this point? So when they're talking about this time when Herod is king, you know the last time they had a king? 600 years. 600 years without a king. 600 years of being ruled by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and now the Romans. And all that time and, and more, they, they'd been looking for a Messiah, a conquering king who would come from their own ethnic line, anointed by God to rule them. Uh, and so in other words, this little line about Herod being called king of Judea, it actually reveals a hope deferred, a long-standing hope deferred. Um, But there's another hope deferred in this passage, and this is the person who doesn't have a name, so let me show you that. Uh, In verse 5, we meet Zechariah and Elizabeth, and we're going to come back to them in much more detail in a minute. But skip down now to verse 7. So they've introduced Zechariah and Elizabeth, and then verse 7, speaking about them, but they were childless. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now the second name isn't so much a name, it's a longing of two people to give someone a name. Uh, It says that they're both very old, which means they must have spent years, perhaps decades, praying that God would give them a child. And so they had hoped, and they had prayed, but the answer never came. And now they're in their old age. And so now, according to the normal and ordinary, natural means, there is no more hope. Like It's not possible. It's not happening for them. And so Luke sets us up here in this passage to see these two great hopes deferred. One is like a national hope. That has been deferred. Uh, It it touches every person in the nation, and it has done so for 600 years. But he also brings it all the way into a personal hope. A personal hope that's deferred, that shows the deep disappointment of just two normal, everyday people. And you can imagine how during those 600 years of exile and occupation by other nations, or during those decades of childlessness, that normally faithful people would sometimes be tempted to say, Well, that's it. God must have forgotten me. And we often speak that way when things are dark and hopeless, right? In our our modern age, we expect things, uh, we expect immediate results, right? So I ordered it on my phone while sitting on my sofa, and I expect it delivered to my front door tomorrow, right? That's how we live now. Uh, And we expect those results because it is possible. (laughs) I can order something. I could order something right now. It'll be at my house tomorrow. Uh, we're, we've sort of become like a bunch of Veruca Salts walking around. Does anybody remember that from Charlie and Chocolate Factory? I actually watched the other night, I, I watched the, the old uh, Gene Wilder version, which is the much better version of it, by the way. Um, and the actress uh, who played Veruca Salt, she really, I mean, she had other lines, but she only needed to learn one line, really. 
And the one line was, I want it now, Daddy. I want it now. That's all she had to learn. Isn't that how we pray? I want it now. But sometimes getting it now means actually we're going to miss out on something much better. Um, the, I mean, I say he's famous. You've probably never heard of him. But there's a famous uh, professor and theologian from Yale. Um, and uh, his name is Miroslav Volf. And he actually he lived through the Balkan Wars. Uh, so he grew up in Croatia, lived through the Balkan Wars, and at one point escaped. And he's become this brilliant um, professor. And uh, he wrote a book, uh, became a Christian, and wrote a book called Free of Charge, Giving and Forgiving in a Culture Stripped of Grace. And uh, in this book, he reflects on his and his wife's uh, struggles with infertility. I want to read you a little bit of that story uh, because I think it stands up to and pushes back on our I want it now way of thinking. Uh, So this is a bit of a long passage, so buckle up. Here we go. He says, can infertility be a gift? Poison and a curse. That's how an unexplained infertility of ours felt to me for what seemed like an eternity. Nine years of trying to have a child of our own was like having to drink bitter waters from a poisoned well month after month. Nothing could break the sinister hold of barrenness on our lives. Not strict adherence to whatever expert advice we could get, not prayer, not the latest infertility techniques, not fasting, nothing. 100 months worth of hopes all dashed against the stubborn realities of bodies that just wouldn't produce offspring. At times, like Abraham, we hoped against hope, and yet the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist wouldn't help our bodies give us an Isaac of our own. Christian community wasn't much help either. Every time we would go to worship, the laughter and boisterousness of the little ones milling around in the community room would remind me of unfulfilled dreams. The season of Advent was the worst. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. I would hear, read, or sung in hundreds of different variations. But for me, a child was withheld. The miracle of Mary's conception, the rejoicing of the heavens at her newborn child, the exaltation of Elizabeth, all became signs of God's painful absence, not God's advent. And the government will be upon his shoulders? If God's son indeed was in charge, it seemed that he didn't care to move even his royal finger in our favor. At Christmas, I felt like a child in a large family, the only one to whom parents had forgotten to give gifts. Others' joy increased my sadness. And his name shall be called Wonderful, A mighty God? No, not wonderful, at best puzzling. No, not a mighty God, at best a sympathetic but disappointing divine observer. And then he recounts in a a paragraph uh, the moment when they received their two adopted sons about four years apart. And then he continues to reflect. He says, during those nine years of infertility, I wasn't waiting for a child who stubbornly refused to come, though that's what I thought at the time. In fact, I was waiting for the two boys I now have, Nathaniel and Aaron. I love them. And I want them in their unsubstitutable particularity, not children in general, of which they happen to be exemplars. 
Then it dawned on me. Fertility would have robbed me of my boys. You see, from my present vantage point, that would have been a disaster. The disaster is not having what I so passionately love. Infertility was the condition for the possibility of these two indescribable gifts. And understanding that changed my attitude toward infertility. Since it gave me what I now can't imagine living without. Poison was transmuted into a gift. God's strange gift. The pain of it remains, of course, but the poison is gone. Nine years of desperate trying was like one long, painful childbirth, the purpose of which was to give us Nathaniel and Aaron. True, we had, biological, had we had biological children of our own, I would have loved and wanted them, and I would have been spared the pain. But that's what would have happened. It didn't. I have Nathaniel and Aaron. It's them that I love. It's them that I want. And it's they who redeem the arduous path that led to having them. So what will happen with the poison that spoils God's good gifts? God will either turn it into a medicine or remove it completely. The gifts will remain, which are we ourselves and everything that surrounds us. And in the end, their prayers were answered. Their prayers were answered, just answered much differently and much later than they originally had hoped. I love the way Tim Keller puts it in his book on prayer. He says, God will either give us what we ask or give us what we would have asked if we, know, if we knew everything he knows. And that is so, such a bigger vision of God than I think we probably normally take. We tend to think of God as the genie who should give us everything we ask for right then and there. But instead, a much bigger vision of God says that he knows far more than we'll ever know. Which means sometimes the answers to our prayers are no. That's it. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is not yet. Or sometimes the answer is, I've got something better for you than, than you could ever dream or imagine. That doesn't mean we stop asking, but it does mean that whatever it is that you've been asking for, hoping for, prayer is learning to trust God's wisdom and goodness and sovereignty no matter the outcome. So there's two things here that Zechariah and Elizabeth, that they actually get that are better because they didn't get what they asked for when they asked for it. Just like our friend Miroslav Volf. And that leads us then to part two, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, first I want you to notice their names, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, and unlike my friend uh, I was telling you about earlier, uh, Patience and her sisters, Blessing and Sandra, it's just never not funny to me. <laughs> I've never met Sandra, but every time I see Patience, I'm like, how's Sandra? Never asked about Blessing. <laughs> For the most part, in our culture, we pick names that sound nice, Right? Or maybe you have a personal connection, right? I was named after a beloved family member who passed away uh, not long before I was born, and so we sometimes do that. But oftentimes, Hebrew names have a meaning behind them. Um, and Zechariah and Elizabeth are no different. Their names have a meaning to them. And I love this. Do you know what Zechariah's name means in Hebrew? God remembers. God remembers. That's Zechariah's name. 
uh, an Elizabeth name. Um, there's, there's some debate about this, but I think they're both are pretty adjacent, so I'm just going to give you both. Um, it either means something like the oath of God, or it means God of abundance, right? Uh, and today, we, you know, we have celebrity names, right? Benefer. There's Benefer 2.0. Is there Benefer 3.0? Are they like, are one of the Bens in the gen, are they back together? Is that like a thing? Yes, okay. So maybe there's Benefer 3.0. There was Tomcat, remember Tomcat? And of course the OG Brangelina, uh, which still hurts for some people. Um, <laughs> but here, here's what I love about the story in Luke chapter one. If you were to put Zechariah and Elizabeth's names to, next to each other, if you were to make a celebrity name out of their two names, here's what it means. God remembers his oath. Or, God remembers to give abundantly. Now, I want you just to hold on to that. God remembers his oath. God remembers to give abundantly. Because what I want to do now is take a break on that, and I want to look at the two things that Zechariah and Elizabeth received that were far better than they could uh, have thought to pray for. And the first thing that they get as a result of this waiting that they have to do um, is character. Uh, Look at verse 6, Luke chapter 1, verse 6. It says, both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. In other words, what that's saying is the two of them had uh, deep character. And it was their waiting on the Lord that produced this deep character within them. And what does it mean, by the way, to wait in the Lord in such a way that it produces character? Uh, Romans 5 Uh, Can we put that on the screen? Romans 5. Paul writes this. He says, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And there's two things right off the bat that this passage is telling us to do. First, in verse 2, is to worship God. That's what it means when it says we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And rejoice is another way of saying worship. And a very simple definition of worship is actually to ascribe worth or value to something. And so to worship God is to ascribe worth to him, to ascribe value to him, to give him the weight of value in your life. But then the second thing it tells us to do, starting in verse 3 up there, is it says, rejoice, it's the same word, rejoice in your sufferings. Now why would a person rejoice in their suffering? Why would a person worship in their sufferings. Well, it's the same definition. Describe worth and value. Now, that's not typically how we approach our suffering, right? We say suffering is worth nothing. I, I want nothing of this suffering. It is valueless to me. But what Paul is saying is to ascribe worth to your suffering. Find the value in your suffering. Now, we know, what, you know, we know that if we suffer through eating lots of salads, we'll lose weight. And so we ascribe worth to the suffering of eating salads. At least that's how I feel. But we know that it will produce something better. And what is the better thing that the suffering produces here? Well, look at the rest of the verse up there on the screen. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And here's what this is saying. Give worth to your sufferings. Find the value in your sufferings, knowing that it produces endurance. 
What is endurance? Endurance is waiting. So finding your worth in your suffering actually produces the ability to wait. It says, okay, there's some worth and some value to the suffering, so I will wait out the answer. And then look what the waiting, the endurance does. Look what it produces. It produces character. And character is being able to be described like Zechariah and Elizabeth, righteous in the sight of God, living out and keeping God's commands. Everywhere else in the scripture that's talked about is not turning from the right, you know, turning to the right or to the left, but staying on the path. That's righteousness. And just imagine how easy it would have been for Zechariah and Elizabeth to turn away. Just think about the leverage that they would have, right? Zechariah has spent his entire life, by the way, he's a priest in the temple. He spent his entire life working for God. His whole life has been serving God. And it would be easy for him to say, God, look at all the ways I've served you. Look at all the times I showed up early. Can't you just do this one thing for me? But instead of turning away from God... He lives for God. He deepens his character. And then look at what the character produces. Look on the screen, verse 4, hope. And it goes on to say that hope doesn't disappoint. And there's our Advent theme of hope. And I love this about Zechariah and Elizabeth, that rather than rejecting God because he didn't fulfill their dreams the way that they wanted him to, They push deeper into their relationship with God, growing in their character, growing in their trust in God, growing in their love for him, continuing to show up to worship him. And so that's just the first thing that Zechariah and Elizabeth get when their prayers are not answered. They get character and they get hope. The second is this, they actually get to be part of God's salvation plan. And we don't have time to dig into all of their story, but essentially the story goes like this. Zechariah is this priest. He works in the temple, and one day he's at work in the temple, and he's selected to light the incense and offer some special prayers for that day. And when he does, he goes into this room to light the incense, and he meets the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel tells him, you're going to have a son. And your son is going to be like the prophet Elijah. He's going to go before God's Messiah, and he's going to say, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, again, we don't have time to dig into this one at all, but... Isn't that much better than what they've been asking God for? They're just like, hey, God, give us a kid. And God's like, I'm going to give you a prophet. You get to be part of God's special plan. Now, just to apply that really quickly, the angel Gabriel says that you need to name him John. Give him the name John. And we'll get to the meaning of that in a minute. But when their son is born, everybody wants to know. I love this part of the story. Everybody wants to know, hey, what are you going to name him? And uh, they would expect him, everyone would expect them to name this son after his father, Zechariah, or maybe some other important family name. But think about it. What if they did that? What would that be saying? What that would be saying is, this child is mine. They would be taking God's gift and holding it with a tight fist. But instead, that's not what they do. They give him the name John, just like Gabriel asked him to. And so if naming him what they would want to name him is holding it tightly, what is it? What are they doing when they give him the name that Gabriel said? They're holding him loosely. And you find out at the end of the passage, he like grows up in the family and then he moves out into the wilderness and he's like lives like a weirdo in the wilderness. 
So what are they doing? They're receiving the gift, but they're holding it loosely. And it's important we see that because oftentimes we take the gifts that God has given and then we make those gifts into like little gods. And C.S. Lewis talks about it like, like it's like we're making a good thing into an ultimate thing. And what happens when we do that is we miss out on the giver. Right? We pray and pray and pray for a promotion or to get that part or that role in that film. And then God gives it. And what do we do? We, that becomes our ultimate thing. Or we pray and pray and pray for children. And then what do we do? We make them the ultimate thing. Or we pray and pray and pray for a spouse. And then what do we do? We make the spouse the ultimate thing. And so on and so forth. All the while, the giver is left in the rearview mirror until we need to ask him for another gift. And don't you see? Don't you see that the gift that God wants to give you most is himself? That's what he wants to give you most. And that's exactly what we see then in part three. So we know Zechariah's name means God remembers. And we know Elizabeth's name means something like oath of God or God of abundance. But now part three, let's look at John's name. Right? So you put those two names together. You have God remembers his oath or God remembers to give abundantly. And it's great. I heard some like warm, hearty mmms when I said that earlier. But it still feels a little bit incomplete, doesn't it? God remembers his oath to do what? Or God remembers to give what abundantly? Anything? Well, here's where John's name comes in. You want to know what John's name means? It means the grace of God. So now we have not just a celebrity name, but a family name. And you put them all together. I love this, right? Here, I'm putting it all together. I'm even fusing together the two options of what Elizabeth's name means in this, okay? God remembers to give grace abundantly. Just sit with that for a minute. God remembers to give grace abundantly. Aren't you glad they didn't name him Zechariah? Those names together would be God remembers his oath, God remembers. Sounds like Yoda. (laughs) And what is that grace that God remembers to give abundantly? Well, this is where the song comes in. This is what was read to us earlier. The part of the story we haven't even talked about yet is when Gabriel, the angel, tells Zechariah in the temple that he's going to have a son... Zechariah doesn't believe him at first. He's like, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, Gabe, we're kind of old. And uh, that's not really happening. And Gabriel says, uh, well, because you didn't believe me, you aren't going to be able to speak. And I think he was deaf too, because later on they have to write something down for him. And so what that means is he's deaf and mute until John is born. And so follow this. Zechariah has not been able to speak for at least nine months, maybe more. And the very first words that come out of Zechariah's mouth is this song in verses 68 to 79, which begins with praise, begins with worship. He has not been able to speak for nine months. And the first words out of his mouth are worship. He says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel. And what does he praise God for? Look at verses 72 and 73. Do you see two words in there that stick out? Verse 72, 
remember his holy covenant. What is another word for covenant? Oath. Verse 73, in case you didn't know that, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. There's the names. God remembers his oath. And what was the oath? Well, now we have John's name expounded upon, verse 74. His oath to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And by the way, up in verse 68, there's the word redemption. In verse 69 and 71, there's the word salvation. In verse 72, it says to show mercy. Of course, we know that John isn't the one himself who's going to bring salvation. That's not his job. But the last and very touching part of the song where Zechariah sings about his own son, his own son will be the prophet, the one who will prepare the way for the Lord to come to bring that salvation. And I love this message that Zechariah says his son will proclaim. Look, at, look again, verse 77. This is what he knows his son is going to say. His son is going to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet to the path of peace. And so what is John going to do? He's going to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. That is the hope. That's our greatest hope. The forgiveness of sins through the tender mercy of our God. Isn't that a great phrase? Tender mercy. Tender mercy. The word there for tender, it's the word splanknon, which is one of my favorite Greek words. It's kind of like an onomatopoeia because it's... The word is for, like, everything that exists in here. And if you were to, like, you know in those war movies where people get stabbed, the noise that it makes is, like, splanchnon as it comes out. It's like an onomatopoeia. You'll never forget that word now. But that, that word, it's, it's where your vital organs are located. And to us, that's like, oh, it's kind of weird. But in the ancient world, here is where people talked about as the seat of their emotions. Your deepest affections came from here. Your, your gut, your splanchnon. In other words, the tender mercy, that word tender is that word splanchnon. And so the deep mercy of God is his deepest affection, and his deepest affection is for you. And of course, that's displayed in the lengths that he went to provide this salvation that Zechariah sang about. His deepest affection for you is shown in his son giving his life for you on the cross. That is the grandest display of God's tender mercy, his splanchnon mercy towards you. And if that is how much he loves you, if he loves you with tender mercy from the most inner part of his being, then anything he might withhold from you, a job, a part in a film, a spouse, children, whatever it is you've been asking God for, I can tell you one thing is true. He is not withholding that thing from you because he doesn't love you. 
in his tender mercy, the deep affection that comes from his inner being, he is keeping back harm from you. Or he's, he's holding out to give you something better. That's the tender mercy of God for you. And so would you trust him with that? Would you trust his tender mercy, trust that whatever you're asking for that he hasn't given you yet is actually out of his love for you? I don't, I don't have children at home. The closest thing I can possibly compare it to is my dog, but you all get mad at me when I do, so I'm not going to do that. This doesn't count as my one a year, by the way. I know enough about parenting to know that those of you who are parents, and you can tell me if I'm wrong later, but if you gave everything to your children that they asked you for, it would ruin them. Right? They would all have type 2 diabetes. They would all be so self-involved, it would be impossible for them to learn anything at school. And so when you, as a mom or a dad, when you say no, you actually understand the tender mercy of God. You understand the tender mercy of God that might say no. Or the tender mercy of God that might say not yet. Or the tender mercy of God that might say, I, okay, you're asking me for that. I have something way better for you. You don't even, you don't even know. And that leads us then back to this week's theme of hope. And I want to finish with this. Um, did you notice how Zechariah's song finishes? Uh, if you look at the very end of it, it finishes with a word picture of a sunrise. You see that in there? And I know uh, many of you are not early risers, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of you know that I am an early riser. And I'm up before the sun pretty much every day. It's not because I'm, I'm, I'm not better than anybody. It's, it's just my body does that. So it's like I'm just awake, and I can't help it. Uh, it's the same physical compulsion that some of you who stay up till 2 a.m. have. It's just in reverse. But being an early riser means I get to see the sunrise most days. And the windows in my living room, if you've been to my house, they actually look towards the east. And every morning is a reminder of the hope. Not, by the way, an unsure hope. Right? An unsure hope is, I hope the Cubs will win today, which is always an unsure hope. But the sunrise is a sure hope. Like, I know without a doubt. Like, I'll wake up in the morning... It'll be pitch black. I can't see anything in the house. I'm not turning the lights on, so I don't want to wake Emmy up. But I know without a doubt that the sun will rise. And I look forward to it. The colors of the sky, the way that everything will be illuminated. That's the word picture that Zechariah finishes the, his song with. With that absolutely sure hope of a sunrise. The tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. That's your sure hope. When you're waiting for a prayer to be answered, the sun's going to rise. It's going to come up. It's a sure hope. It's going to happen. It happens every day. That's what Zechariah is saying. He's saying, no, when you are waiting, know that the tender mercy of God will rise like the sun. You can count on it. You might not know what it looks like. It might be a no. Or it might be a wait a little bit longer. 
Or it might be, I have something far better than you could even think to ask me for right now. But no matter which of those three answers you get to your prayers, the tender mercy of God will rise in your life like the sun rose this morning. It's going to do it again tomorrow. And the next day. And the next day. Until Jesus comes back. That's our sure hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice. We rejoice in the one who, who came. In that child who was born. In that child who brought light into the world. And we look forward to him coming again. And Lord, we pray in the meantime for all the things that we're asking you for, praying for, begging you for. Lord, help us to have a big enough vision of you that when you say no, we know it's because of your tender mercy. That we would know when you say not yet that it's because of your tender mercy. And Lord, give us the endurance and the patience to wait for the things that are better that we don't even know to ask for. We ask you that you'd fill us with that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.